You're listening to the Irish Times. Here we are, Mary. How are you, Gavin? Hello, and welcome to the Out of Time podcast. Malky Clerken is away deep down in Clare somewhere mm. for a week. So you are, you're stuck with myself, Gavin Comiskey, and Mary Hannigan. How are you? For one week only. We better make the most of it. Look, we've three topics to get into on this summer's Monday morning. And Ian O'Reardon has arrived in the Irish Times building with Sonia Sullivan. At the end of our show today, they'll be revisiting Sonia's column on Castor Semenya recently. We've got a heap of GA. We've got so much GA to get through. The football qualifiers are just out. Uh, the rise of Wexford under Davy. Uh, Davy Fitz's clean sweep. And what appears to be a Limerick dynasty now. I don't think we can deny that anymore. So we will get to that and we will spend our time on it. But... First of all, we want to talk about the Women's World Cup. Um, we're going to have BBC Sport presenter Sarah Mulcairns on the line. The Galway native, she's been in France for the whole tournament. She's been on the beat. We really want to hear what she's talking about. But, Mary, that is not the main football topic no. in the Irish Times or in any Irish media today. Bit of a gloomy doomy. Could you tell us a bit about what Colin Bell, what happened with Colin Bell, the yeah, Ireland manager? He, as he revealed himself on, on RT on Saturday, he got an offer... We don't know when exactly the first offer uh, was from Huddersfield Town to become their assistant manager. And he said he turned that down, but they came back with uh, an improved offer. So he, at that point, went to the FAI to have a chat about it. And the upshot was that he has resigned as manager of the the women's team. Uh, Nine weeks away from the start of their qualifying campaign for the next European Championships, so timing, not really ideal, particularly like when we're watching the World Cup and there's so much chat about, you know, the potential of the game. And, uh, and uh, we're going backwards. We're kind of, that's what it is. We're definitely stuck in the mud. Yeah. But uh, what is it? It Was it, OK, because Colin Bell got offered a job to go back into men's football coaching mm-hmm. with Huddersfield mm-hmm. in the championship. So it's a financial thing. He definitely, I presume somewhere along the line, and the FEI seemed to get the message going, it was money. But... He came back at them and said, let me build something really special here over four years. Right. That's what That was the way he put forward and the FAR kind of put forward and well, it was more of a financial exactly. thing. Exactly. Which, which would you be leaning towards? <laughs> well, it seemed like, you know, what, what you would take from it is that, yeah, Huddersfield came back with a better offer and at that point, yeah, it was about money. But maybe to kind of justify looking for more money, he was saying to the FAI, well, expand my role, allow me to kind of oversee the development of, of the women's game in Ireland, but that involved more money. And as they said themselves, with it's they're a little bit busy at the moment mm. with, with stuff going on. But isn't this a great but, chance when we're at rock bottom? I know, yeah. For them to actually really show and build something and go, look, yeah. we're going to be serious about women's the women's game. But ultimately, it would have involved, I would have thought, a fairly greatly increased salary for mm. for him. And so you can get it from their point of view that the timing just was very unfortunate. That um, you know, they're handing out kind of fifty percent pay increases to people yeah. at a time when people aren't entirely happy with how, how things are being looked after. So it's hugely unfortunate, especially because they're just nine weeks away for, from... Um, and especially because we're getting to know this women's football team because we've got yeah. Louise Quinn and Stephanie Roach on the TV every, exactly. almost every other day yeah. chatting away yeah. and we're seeing, oh, well, yeah. the rest of the world or the rest of the country beginning to learn a little bit more about these. Unfortunately, I think they're going to be, have to talk about this probably tomorrow when... Exactly, exactly. Like and a, it, it was just that sense from Louise Quinn and Stephanie Roach. It's like, here we go again. Like every time you kind of feel like you're making a bit of progress, something like this happens and it feels like you're kind of going backwards again. And and it is a squad with a lot of potential. I mean, when you just look through it, so many of them are playing in like the Super League in England. There are players kind of around Europe. Mm. A lot of players playing with good colleges in America. They're there on scholarships. So you really feel like there is great potential with this team. So this doesn't help. It's kind of not quite back to square one, but it must feel like that for them at the moment. Okay, we have the BBC's Sarah Mulkerns on the line from Leon is where you are now, I believe, for the semis. We got England, USA tomorrow. And Sarah, how's it going? Yeah, it's going well. It's going well. The sun is shining. Just the mere 37 degrees as I look out the window and get the sunblock ready. Getting ready to get the sweat on for the eighth or the tenth day in a row here in this heat wave. Oh, wow. How long have you been in France? 
Uh, it is a month now. Uh, yeah, a month out of a suitcase. Uh, I've mostly been in Paris for the first few weeks and then kind of during the week I did a few of the different games around the north and now it is Lyon for semi-finals and the finals. I know you've covered loads of major tournaments before, but how will this, uh, if we were to end it now, I still think it'll be defined by what the semi-finals, what happens in the semis, but how, what's your highlight so far? How do you think this World Cup's going to be defined? Because it's, it's definitely broken new ground, hasn't it? I know, and that, that's the thing about you know women's football and, and the World Cup is that it feels like every kind of next tournament I go to, it all, it's always billed as this is the moment, this is the big thing, this is the best thing. And it's just kind of gradually growing. But I think the difference in this one here is that actually this event now fits culturally into where some of the world is going, I suppose, with women and with equality and women's rights and, and the conversations around it. So I think that's why there, there feels like there is more impetus in covering this event and more attention on the athletes. Um, you know, and, and even in terms of the amount of people out here, you know, uh, press conferences and journalists and articles that are being written, written and social, you know, social media kind of clicks and likes and engagements and, and stuff that does feel massively different. And I think for me, you always kind of, well, I always judge it on the crowds and, and how the crowds are receiving um, the game. And I know that that USA-France game on Friday night in Paris it mm. will definitely stick with me for a long time. And I know it didn't go France's way, um, but those final 10 minutes when Randy Renard uh, scored their first goal to kind of bring it back to one goal, I mean, the noise in the atmosphere in that stadium was raucous. It was electric and it was just like any other sporting event and I think that's the thing whereas I've, I've been to a lot of women's football in the past and, and sometimes it just doesn't feel as intense but in that moment that was just pure fandom you know and it was just that pure visceral uh, reaction and I think the more people engage and, and know and get buy into it the more you'll get that sort of emotion which I think is what, what sport lives on and, and thrives on. Are the Americans the bad uh, girls in this? Are they being shaped up as the, the evil? Uh, they're, are they sp- were they spying on the English, or is that a is that a real too trashy a story, or what's the, what's the read on that from from the ground? I, I like I know a lot of the American um, journalists out here um, just were a bit nonplussed by that, and they were like. Yeah, but they'd always go and check out their hotels. I mean, I, I really don't see what the issue is. They were they were quite kind of taken aback that this was a thing. Um, and uh, I know that Jill Ellis uh, and her coaching staff were quite keen to play it down. Um, I think the Americans just, particularly with this World Cup and the characters that they have in it, they have a tag on their backs and they're coming into this tournament you know, in some people's eyes as, you know, massive heroes because of their push for equality and the fact that they're taking on their federation over equal pay and the fact that, you know, they're, they're arguing that they're more successful on the pitch than the men's team who didn't even qualify for the last World Cup. So some people just think they're amazing. And then there's others who are just like, well, you know, with the economies and, you know, the differences in, in terms of, a, you know, the money around the women's That's team ongoing, have Sarah, isn't it? That legal yeah. case is ongoing. So it's uh, they won't get as much oxygen as they will now than to but have they stopped talking about that because the football has to take over or because this is the chance to keep it in keep it in the media I suppose yeah, we, we have heard during um, this tournament that it w- it's likely to go to mediation first before it goes to court. Now, they have kind of lodged it and filed it with, it with a court in California, but it is probably going to go to mediation. And that emerged during this tournament. I think there was an awful lot of talk in the lead up to it here when the football is on, um, you know, the, it's less so. But I think there's a real feeling that they feel like they need to win this to prove and to back up um, their calls and claims for, for equal pay. Um, but then you also had the sideshow of um, Megan Rapino last week with the comments around the White House and, and also calling that game between France and USA, uh, you know, a, a total circus with some expletives in it. Um, you know, so she's she's quite happy to play the arch villain and, and to take all the pressure and, and I know there was talk as well about the celebrations that they had over, uh, you know, with that 13-0 win over Thailand. So, 
you know, I, I just think that's a good thing because, you know, for, for so many people, women's sport has to be a moral compass for it in order to be able to, you know, break through and, and to promote all these wonderful ideals. But ultimately, you just have a bunch of humans playing sport. And with a bunch of humans playing sport, you have all different ranges of, of people and emotions. And, you know, maybe maybe this is it just being seen in, you know, as a complete picture in that regard. Sarah, you mentioned there Rapino. I mean, she's probably the, the, the one player in this tournament who's got maybe most attention on and off the pitch. I mean, obviously all the Trump business and everything. But the, I mean, there have been some amazing pieces written about her. We, we were talking earlier about one on the SPN website by Gwendolyn yeah. Oxenham, an extraordinary story about her brother who's spent most of his, his time in jail. Um, and just him, you know, trying to see her games, you know, building. Uh, there was one story from the last World Cup. He used 60 books tied together with torn sheets to try and peep out over the top of the door of his cell to see the small television in the corridor so he could watch her play in the World Cup. Like it was the stuff of movies. But is she the kind of almost iconic figure of the, this World Cup because of what she's doing on the pitch, but the stuff off it too? I think it's definitely turning into that. I think in the lead up to it with this American team, you, you know, you had a lot of the focus on Alex Morgan and, and her actually winning the Golden Boot. And, you know, she's probably one of the most sponsored players in the game. But actually, Megan Rapinoe, because of her comments re-emerging from that video and, and also as well, like I went to that press conference after... Uh, those comments came out and it was in the build-up to the, the France game. And she doesn't shy away from it. She she holds it um, brilliantly, you know, from her point of view, because she marched into that press conference. She knew what questions were coming. And so she just said flat out, I'm going to address this first. I know what you're all going to ask. So let me be clear. You know, I stand by my comments. I encourage my teammates to think about whether they uh, visit the White House or not. She was very clear that she doesn't agree with what the administration is is doing. She's very clear that she has different um, views on life and, and different things that she wants to put her energy and focus into um, bettering. And, you know, within that, she was also asked about her, her brother in that regard. And, you know, she's so open about it. She's very clear. She does it very matter of factly, um, if that's even a phrase. And, um, you know, then, then you just saw on Friday night a, a moment where she could crumble as a person, but she didn't. She just got bigger, you know, and and she is just developing into this icon for the USA and for what this team stands for and, and for probably the moment that, that women generally, regardless of sport, are, are perhaps in. I like what you said about the moral compass which is just bullshit, really, because like if you want to do well in a major tournament, uh, like the, one of these semi-finals is going to get nasty. It has to like the Cameroons. I completely understood what they did. Was Sarah was was Phil Neville a little tone deaf? Did he not kind of get it when he with his comments what he's talked about? Because this is going to come back onto the table at some stage. Something's going to happen in these semis where it's not going to be very ladylike, if you know what I mean. It's just going to be real high elite level sport, which is cynical and can be vicious. Yeah, well, you just look at how the USA played out the end of that France game. I mean, they were playing anti-football for the last, you know, five, ten minutes. Which you is know. what you do, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're perfectly entitled to do that. You know, they're, they're here to win a World Cup. You know, regardless of their stances and, and having to have navigated their lives uh, off the pitch as female athletes and demanded respect and asked for, you know, proper facilities and, and time on a pitch. You know, once they get on the pitch, it's, it's just about football and you know, I don't I don't think that, you know, that conversation helps because, you know, we, we should just look at them as if you would look at any other um, sport or, or, or event. And, you know, we can criticize the behavior is around it and say whether we'd like it or not. But, it, it, it you know, they, they shouldn't be held to a higher standard as such or a, a standard that's almost impossible to achieve. And, you know, it, it, I do think that USA-England game will be fiery because I think you have two quite physical, direct teams as well. You know, the, the way they play football, they're not going to stand off each other. You know, there, there's going to be hard tackles. There's going to be plenty of pace. And, you know, it's a semi-final of a World Cup. You know, they'll, each of them will be doing what they need to do. I think, you know, that, that Cameroon-England game will 
was really interesting afterwards, the fallout and, and seeing all the, the different reactions and the different takes around the world. And, and, and maybe it comes from, you know, not enough context being around women's football. And, and you have a lot of new people coming to it who, who perhaps don't know that the context behind different things, you know, who don't know that Phil Neville came in after a tumultuous time with England. And, you know, he... I know afterwards was, you know, very keen to promote women's football, but ultimately it's not up to Phil Neville to be a saviour of women's football. You know, women's football is just football and, you know, it's 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 up to everybody to kind of, you know, promote it and that. Um, but you look at the Cameroon players and, you know, I've, I've been to two Africa Cup of Nations for those African teams and, you know, they, they play maybe two games every four years. You know, they, they don't have any sort of structured leagues. They have no professional um you know, clubs or, or leagues, you know, they, they play on the street when they're young. They maybe get to a team when they're 15, 16, 17, you know, and they have to fight very hard. And they're not used to a pressure cooker like that. You know, it, it comes around, you know, every four years for them. So people react in different ways. And, you know, I, I don't condone the behavior and I don't think anybody did. But it's just those layers of context that, that maybe people don't know as much of so that afterwards when you when you're trying to figure it out what happened it, it just sometimes it can boil over. Sarah do you think the players sometimes tire of expect being expected to be like saleswomen for the game rather than that you know just watch them play talk to them about their football it, it, do you think or or do they embrace that role a lot of them that you would have dealt with through through the the World Cup do, do they tire of that, that they're always having to sell the game, you know? I, I, I think some do. I, I think it's different between the generations. There's definitely a market difference in the older generation that did have to fight, you know, an awful lot uh, more to have any sort of structure to their uh, football careers when they were younger. Um, and I think they're quite keen to to keep that going in the younger players. But you do see in some of the younger players, uh, like the Americans, you know, speaking to Mallory Pugh, when I was here, she's quite a, a youngster and, and, you know, she, she hasn't had the battles that, that all the rest of them have had. And I think that change over the next five years. And, and I think, you know, young players like that maybe don't don't feel it as much or don't see it as much of an issue and and you know maybe i think they they quite don't quite get it as much what's going on sarah then just with with england has it caught fire from your perspective i know you're you're not you're over in france but do you feel like from the coverage on the bbc that it's uh it's catching fire like um like it's strange thing is from an irish perspective we don't hate them which we kind of probably you know the irish thing you know that we we need to be hating the english kind of attitude <laughs> but we don't so uh that's like something but what, what do you feel like do they need to kind of beat the usa to really catch the the, the full attention of the nation or is it as it already happening yeah. uh, i you know i do think it's happening uh to a big uh, regard because of the figures that that we've seen you know kind of breaking records the the last big figure was at the euros when they got to the semi-finals then and that was maybe 2.3 2.6 uh, million people watching and now you know we're we're edging ever closer to kind of 6 8 10 million um mm. i think if they beat the usa that would be massive you know i think that that's the point where you would really um kind of say, okay, you know, for everyday general kind of punters, you know, that that would be the big thing. And I think if they do, that'll bring it to a level where it isn't at uh, right now. But I think the interesting thing was that that France-USA game on Friday was on BBC One, it was on a Friday night, and that peaked, I think, at about 5.6 million um, people. And I thought that was great from, you know, if, if you're in the UK, that that's showing this expanded interest, that it's not just there because of national pride as such and wanting to follow your team, but then, you know, forgetting about the rest. You know, there was 5.6 million people who were interested enough to watch USA France because they had figured out, oh, this was going to be, you know, the biggest game of the tournament. They wanted to see the two styles come up against each other. And I, I think that's actually one of the, the biggest takeaways for me. Okay, break it down for us. On Sunday, who's going to be in the final? No. no. Easy. Um, easy question for you, Sarah. Very easy. I mean, I love predictions. I always get them wrong. Um, I do think the USA will beat England. I'm sorry, England. I'm sorry, my employers. Um, I just think the USA are ruthless. They have not played at their best, but they find ways to win. And they just, they just won't lose. They just 
do not want to lose. And I know Phil Neville has been talking a lot about the mental edge that he has brought to this England team. And I do think they're going to improve. Um, you know, but I just think that the USA will will be way too much for, for England um, tomorrow. And then the other one is kind of tough to call. And I think it might be the, and I know I say it as inexperienced, even though they're European champions for Netherlands, but I, they're not experienced on a World Cup level. This is only their second World Cup and they haven't been playing as well as they, they can do. And I think there's something going on in this Swedish side with Petter Jarhardsson in charge. Every time I talk to the players, they're so much happier than they have been in the past with their previous manager. They know what they want to do. Um, it's not the most attractive brand of football, but they get the job done. And he was very clever resting um, a lot of players in their final group game against the USA. So I think it's going to be a USA-Sweden final and then it'll be USA winning. Okay, one week to go, Sarah. Keep going, keep tweeting. Thanks a million. <laughs> Cheers, guys. See Enjoy ya. it, Bye. Sarah. Okay, we, we kind of moved to GAA now, but first we have Sonia Sullivan in studio. How's it going, Sonia? How's good, things? Good, good to be back in uh, uh, the summer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. What has you here at the moment? Um, let me see. I'm actually here, um, I suppose, waiting for my daughter, Sophie, to turn up. Uh, she's going to be running a couple of races here. Uh, the National Junior Championships are on in Tullamore next weekend. Oh. Um, so I'm kind of on her coattails at the moment. And uh, I have a couple of things for myself to do. But uh, How's she going? How do you think she's going to um, do? Well, she's on the transition at the moment. She's just come from uh, winter in Australia and they've been running cross country. Mm. And um, so she's been topping up with a little bit of speed work. So hopefully, you know, she'll be able to transition as well as she did last year. Yeah, of course. Yeah, OK, we wish her well. Look, we also have the great Ian O'Reardon in studio as well. Ian, how are you? Very well, Gavin. Thanks. Uh, Sonny, we're going to get back to you on the hurling because we knew you were watching Crow Park and Wexford and Davy Fitz's great rise. And we're nearly, are we talking almost about the end of the Brian Cody era? Um, are we are we there yet, Ian? Well, on the hurling front, yesterday was interesting on two fronts, yeah. Um, I think maybe because we have the great Sonia Sullivan here, we should maybe only talk in distance running terms. Um, Go for it. I, d- I definitely feel that... Uh, Wexford Kilkenny, um, I thought I thought Wexford were really driving on emotion here, hunger, you know, that, that that desire to win. Kilkenny possibly panicked a little bit in the last ten minutes. So the first time I saw Brian Cody in the sideline, he looked like, like a man who was a little bit uh, unsure about what was going to happen in the game. Whereas normally he's just calm and relaxed, and that might have trickled down to the players. Limerick Tip, we've seen it, and we saw it in the, in the round robin championship. Tip were cruising along a bit like the the athlete in the heats you know they were looking the part and everyone's kind of thought this, this is the athlete to beat whereas Limerick maybe held something back and then come the final they just they just they just tore into it and I think physically and and possibly mentally out out play Tipperary so um but look I mean it's it, it's it's funny I mean everyone's gone on about the big wins for Wexford and and Limerick but uh Tip and Kenny are still only one one more win away from where they are last year in terms of like they're probably going they're in the quarter final if they win the quarter final they're back in the semi final so still a a long way to go in, in a sort of a short space of time, but two big wins. And I mean, Wexford's first Leinster title since 2004. And um, I actually remember that year because they beat Kilkenny in the semi final with a last minute goal. It was when Cody was behind the goal, yeah. yeah. Absolute drama. It took, an, it, took a, it took the classic last minute goal to win that. So, so these things don't come around very often for Wexford. We saw the celebrations yesterday. We saw we saw the way Davy Fitzgerald reacted. And um, but I don't think we've seen the last of Kilkenny yet. Um, and likewise with Tip, they have to regroup. But the big problem with Tip was, and this was, this was being said all along, that you know Liam Sheedy came back, and there's a lot of there was a lot of sort of um, hype and sort of excitement about that. But then you look at what the players that he that we, he kind of stuck with this existing panel, and he okay he got them playing really well again. The likes of Bubbles O'Dwyer and. Bonner Maher and all these people, but he didn't really deep it, dig into his kind of reserves or the, the younger players. And we saw that yesterday when, when the players that came off the bench, I don't think any of them scored, maybe one or two of them did. But it was it was a real case of like they just ran out of they just ran out of players essentially. And I think that that's the real worry for them is well, do they have the depth? But are we are we looking at are we can we start saying dynasty when we talk about Limerick yet? Are we looking at because like Jackie Terrell who said you can't, this team won't repeat yeah. in all Ireland and a lot of tension came on him for that and he was on TV last night on Sunday game and he goes this is the best team in the country um, like that's it there's, there's no doubt about it like Tony Kelly was also on he was like they're gifted hurlers that don't change for anyone their athleticism is phenomenal isn't it like, like just let's take Kyle Hayes even like we're watching a really special young team here and I think that was confirmed no, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right to say it's the beginning of something big. And I've seen Limerick a few times this year. I saw them in the league final where they were, they were very cool against, against Waterford. They, 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 they turned it on, obviously, and then they had a poor start to the, 
to the round robin. But then there was was it a Clare match where they had to win or they, or they were they were out essentially. And God, they really turned it on that day. And that's when you say a team who just the synergy between the players was incredible. They, they and they had that they had that method and style of play which was which was impossible almost to play against. We saw that again yesterday. And again, the average age of the players are you mentioned Kyle Hayes there, like they're a young team. So for sure, like and I think what what set them, what set them apart yesterday they're was big men as well, aren't they? I mean, obviously they're they're at home and that made a big difference as well. I mean, it, it, like Limerick is very much a home ground. If you go down to the Gaelic ground, you actually feel like you're walking into somebody else's back garden because it's it's that kind of intimate kind of place. Um, but still, I mean, I still think Tipperary will learn from that. I mean, like Sheedy's a smart man. He's going to he's going to realise that. Look, you know, they 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 just they just lack that. I mean, intensity is a buzzword in 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 hurling these days. But they didn't seem. I mean, there was a few. I mean, the Kyle Hayes goal, for example. I mean, I think it was a flick from from one of the Limerick players. They just they basically depossessed Tip and your man flicks into the back of the net. So uh, there was a few moments where you kind of go, look, Tip, kind of not self destructed, but they certainly made it a little bit easier on Limerick. But I mean. Yeah, every every performance now feels like a bit of an open letter to Jackie Tyrrell, doesn't it, to say we're gonna we're gonna win this all Ireland just to prove you wrong. I think Jackie that was, well. What did you think of Crow Park, Sonia? So well, actually, you know, when you're away, you're you're not really immersed in the hurling and the football like people are here. You know, you hear people talk about it and read a little bit in the paper, but it's not the same mm. as when you turn up. And I landed in Dublin Airport yesterday, and I had to pick up my car from Crow Park Hotel. Um, so as we were taxiing in, I was looking up, is there a game on in Croke Park? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know that um, when I uh, got dropped off down there and um, I had to get out of the car early and walk down to the hotel uh, amongst all the, um, the so, Wexford and Kilkenny supporters and, you know, no idea how big a day this was going to be. And uh, so I picked up the car and my, my only thought was getting the car out of there before the crowds, you know, and uh, going, going for a run in St. Anne's Park and then going to get something to eat. And then I was staying with a friend last night and um, they love to watch all sports. So I was in the man cave and um, watching Wexford and Kilkenny. And um, the plan was I was going to watch the first half and then I was going to go for a sleep because I wanted to watch the track meet that mm. was on from coming from Prefontaine at nine o'clock last night. And I'll never stay up oh, that late. We're going to get to that, definitely. So, um, yeah, watched the first half and it was unbelievable, you know, I mean, you know, neither team got more than one or two steps ahead at any time or points ahead, um, you know, using the running analogy there. And um, so it was um, it was compulsive viewing. I couldn't let it go. And then we were kind of flicking around at half time, and um, I was debating if I was going to go and have a sleep or not. Yeah, and it's I so said, I can't. You know, I've got to stay and watch this. And uh, and it was fascinating to watch, you know, just the competitiveness of it and neither team you know, letting off or letting the other get too far ahead. Isn't it so funny that Davy Fitzgerald, throughout all his achievements, he was still almost seen as this figure of fun and like a just mad scientist. But he's done the clean sweep now, Ian. Yeah, it's an amazing record. He's won everything as a manager. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Wexford a lot over the last three years. I think because I live in the Wicklow Mountains, the editor thinks Wexford's only down the road. And it kind of is, but I've seen him a lot this year. And uh, as in all Davy Fitzgerald's three years, and... Again, you, have to, you you can't help but notice the, the the what he's brought to the team, that energy, and the fans have responded, the players have Tactically responded. Tactically, as a coach, though, did he just outplay did Brian Cody? Well, well I mean, well, the two things that struck me about Wexford yesterday was, as, as Sonia said, it was neck and neck, and it was like two two distance runners, you know, battling it out over 10,000 metres. And you knew one of them was going to break, or one of them was going to crack, or one of them was going to surge to the front. And that's exactly what Wexford did. When, when O'Connor went for that goal, he's like, right, this is my kick. I'm going to go for it here. He got the penalty, bang, back in the net. That was, that was game over. And I think that, that came from, like that didn't happen overnight. That came from two or three years of Davy drilling it in, keep going, hang in there, don't give up, don't give up. And then when a chance goes, you have to go for it. I mean, it was almost like they were acting out Davy Fitzgerald's drama on the fields and he was there on the sideline. And then, whereas as I say, Brian Cody looked like a manager who was like, I don't know if I have if I have any more tricks up the sleeve to, to match this. So, um, but it used to be a thing like Paddy O'Shea, and at the tail end of his managerial career, would show up and win tight, like the Westmead years and all that. But it was all still, it was all kind of a showmanship stuff. There, there's more. To, I know he surrounded himself with some great curling coaches and great fitness, yeah. coaches, but there's just. I think this season is proving that there's more to Davy than meets the eye. You know what I mean? It is much more of a deeper kind of a. I mean, I'm talking as the coach, the manager, you know, like this kind of justifies all of that, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't forget as well, at the end of last year, like there was there was talk whether he would, he had enough, We could could he go on? And all the players hired a minibus and he drove down to his house and said, look, please stay on. And you know, I mean, there's a bit of myth involved in that, I'm sure. But I, I was actually driving across country recently from that part of the world to Exeter. And it's, it's, it is a camel ride to get that part of the country. Like it's just, <laughs> you go, where are these roads going? Because there's no, there's no highway from Clare to Wexford. So he's doing this... 
absolute camel ride two or three days a week and I think that you know that all that trickles down to the players as well. But look, as I said at the start here, I mean, a Leinster title was very important for Wexford. The first since two thousand and four, the minors won as well. So it's a huge, it's a huge bump for uh, for Wexford. The, the key now is to, is to keep that 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 hype under control. Do you not uh, think now that Davy he might move to Wexford? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's a great time, maybe you know, just might, for the summer yeah, at least. He yeah, might yeah. Come, he might convince his family now. This is this is going somewhere. I mean, it's, it's an open all Ireland. I mean, as I say, Limerick are definitely the team to beat. I think we've we've established that from. I really, do, you really think it's an open all Ireland? Are, are we not? Watching the best team, like it's an, the Limerick have not rammed at home, like to do because in that first half against Tipperary, that was that was as that the hits going in and Tipperary were on it, yeah, they were in it. They, it was like, ah, oh, here, Tipperary are the best team in the country, they've just been away for a year, and now the Sheedy's back and all that. But so they were there, they were ready, and they could not stop these yeah. young players, yeah, I agree. But I'm saying, like, like Cork are still waiting in the long grass as well. Cork are just waiting to get to Croke Park, they love that. Ah, come on, you see, you genuinely believe it's open. Yeah. I, I, when I'm saying it's open, I don't think it's over yet. I'm not saying it's Limerick's okay, it's mostly Limerick's to lose, but I definitely think Cork are in with a shout 100%. You know, and I think if Wexford Cork can, can win in Ireland, can Wexford win in Ireland? I, well, they can certainly get to a final. I mean, it'll, that semi final is, is definitely going to be their, their all Ireland final, so to speak. And uh, and I say, Kilkenny, like, they're not they're not gone away, they look like a team who possibly could do one or two more games and mm. don't forget there was a few goal chances yesterday I mean, there's a few big saves obviously in both matches which could have changed changed, changed the outcome but uh, look it's 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 funny because after a slightly subdued Munster Championship that Leinster was great and it's still Dublin knocking around as well Dublin going to cause a bit of a stir I think before before the, um, the semi-final stage but to go back to the Davy Fitz thing I've, I've never doubted Davy Fitz's <laughs> influence on the team and pe- people say it is a bit of an act and, and um, but I'll, I'll say one thing in his defence as well. He's been always very good to the media as well. Like he's very, he's very good to deal with, and I think that says a lot as well. Because sometimes... when there's no media ban, or, or when you can find his mobile number, he throws them away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't know how many times he changed his number, but like he's he's, he's given he's some popular. He's, a popular he's given guy. some great. I remember the day after uh, his Waterford team were hammered in that All Ireland final, Buckle Kenny, and he spoke to the media in the old Burlington Hotel for about twenty minutes about how. This won't last forever. Yes, what Kilkenny yeah. are doing to the rest of the country, it can't last forever because there's so many of us and like him. And I didn't believe him. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a wonderful thing. But you just you, you were like, ah, just, just think Kilkenny's never going to end. You know, it's going to go on forever. And because like like where you're surrounded by the dubs at the moment, and it if you go back and listen to what he said then, it was prophetic. Like you know, yeah, and maybe maybe the same will come true about Dublin. But look, bottom line, I think Davy's good. I think he's good for the game. I think he's good for hurling, and I think he's good for sports. And do you think a lot of people yesterday would have been supporting Wexford? My sense was that oh, yeah. you know, yeah. most, most of the country were on the side of Wexford with their with their heart, and they really want. But their head was saying that. Kilkenny had this aura about them and, and they were TJ going to Reed, kind of yeah. come over the top at the last minute and you know it, it was still pretty tight at the end like you know I think we saw a psychological they, shift once they got on that you, definitely, goal, yeah. you kind of thought oh it's all over now but then you were like oh hang on it's not you know there's still a game to fight for here and, and Kilkenny continued to fight for it mm. so um, I think Kilkenny they still haven't lost that aura and they've still got that kind of imposing figure when they come on the field and the history and everything behind them mm. you know just like Cork have when they turn up True. so um, <laughs> as um, Ian was saying there's a long way to go and uh, a few more games to go before you know any predictions can really be made okay, I think well. with Davey I mean I, like, I know he's passionate no matter I'd say if he was playing hopscotch he'd be passionate about it but like he seemed especially so like after that yesterday do you think it's a little bit because people have kind of doubted his his kind of ability to do it again or and sometimes that figure a fun thing as well I'm thinking like Mario Rosenstock sketches taking the piss out of him and so do you think he feels that that he's doubted or you know? yeah oh yeah yeah I mean David like he thrives in that whole uh, us against Davy kind of stuff you know the world against Davy but um, I think I think as well I mean you, you look at the Wexford they are with this possible exception of, well, I mean, Limerick was sort of thing, but they are the most passionate supporters. Like they just, they live and live and breathe hurling down there. And I think before, they, you go back and they said, I talked about it yesterday, like Wexford have had some good managers over the years and, you know, but maybe they were a little bit more, they just kind of played, to, they tried to go maybe down, down the kind of the Brian Cody road, just be strict and be kind of ruthless and just like play the game as hard as you can. Whereas Davey bought the more, that, that passion I think the players maybe they needed that because they're a young team as well like I mean well with the possible exception of Lee Chin and a few others like they are a very young team who are just just kind of still learning the game and I think that's that's been a big, a big difference for them as well Okay look we got to talk about football there's so much happening as well Ian you were in Castlebar um, at Mayo Armagh um, Mayo have just got Galway so 
basically a, a team that doesn't deserve to be in the Super 8 is going to get to the Super 8s because of the way the draws break down. So either whoever comes out of Mead or Clare doesn't look like they're. Granted, Mead have got back to Division 1 this year. Yeah. But I want to talk to you about um, Mayo stumbling, as usual, past a really good, a good Armagh team under Kieran McGinney. But I just want to take you back to a minute in the game. The game was running on fumes. Mayo were 2-11 to 110 up. And Aidan O'Shea had the ball on halfway line and it was a Mayo free. And you're like, this is it. Like, this is one of their, their top experienced players. He'll close this out. He'll play. And he kick passes the ball to Rian O'Neill. Um, like, if a young fella did that, yes. not their leaders and their most experienced and probably most talented player, uh, you'd never forgive him. You'd, you'd drag him off and you wouldn't pick him the next day as a punishment for, for something so sloppy to happen. And <laughs> it happened from one of their senior players. Like, they're such a contradiction, Mayo, aren't they? Yeah. I remember that moment, Gavin. It was a crucial turning point. And look, again, to go back to the distance running line. Oh, keep they, they keep fell, the analogies going as long as you the can. Line. They dived over the line. They collapsed over the line. Whatever term you want to use. But they were not convincing by it. They, you know, there was no hands in the air, you know, roaring across as they crossed the finish. So they were like, phew. It was like, how the hell did we pull that one off? And it, that's why Kieran McGinney was so disappointed afterwards. If it, if it had gone to extra time, which it looking like it was. Now, I was praying to my my grandmother that it wouldn't. Um, but, uh, you know, then, but um, if it had gone to extra time, I've no doubt Armagh would have won because they had all the momentum. Mayor were losing players left, right and centre. But you're right. And funny enough, the manager, um, James Horn, had taken off a few players who had made a lot of mistakes earlier on. He, he whipped off Andy Moore without any great, uh, without any, any great fuss. But you're right. Aidan O'Shea seemed, seemed to get away with it. But look, they're drawing Galway now, and it's the, it's the, it's the classic sort of like it, now or never moment for them again. And if, if they get over if they get over Galway, and it depends where that game is played now, it'll be a neutral venue. But they certainly haven't gone away. But it looks like Lee Keegan has gone for the season. Mm. Uh, okay, Killian O'Connor is back, but same old Mayo. But I mean, it's it's almost like 2016, 2017 all over again, where they just kind of stop start. And if they get into the Super Eights, I mean, they'll 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 certainly be they'll certainly fancy themselves, but. To answer your question, no, definitely not convincing. And I actually felt sorry for Armagh, not sorry for Armagh, but I mean, Armagh probably felt they should have at least got an extra time out of that game. And if that was the case, well, then it could have been, could have been different. OK, we'll, we'll really get into the qualifiers next week. Yeah, well, it is. It's, it's next week we'll know exactly what the, so the Super 8's lineup will be. And as you say, there's going to be, there's going to be a few, I mean, no disrespect to, uh, to Mead and Clare, but I think it's, they'll, they'll probably see this as their, their, their glorious chance to get in there. If they, if, if this is the thing, if, if, if Mead, OK, Mead have... What they did in the Leinster final was nowhere near the standard, but they have got back up to Division One next season. And but if they get into the Super Eights, doesn't it just bring the standards down of the Super Eights? What I'm saying is a Galway or Mayo or possibly even a Tyrone won't make Tyrone should they should beat Cavan. Yeah, you need all these teams in the Super 8 yeah, for the Super yeah. 8 well, to be they, competitive. They start seeding teams in the draw, but I think the whole idea of the, of the last round of the qualifiers is it's a completely neutral open draw, but you're right. Uh, and we even saw last night, oh, sorry, last weekend with the rounds, the fact that Armagh were gone and, um, you know, you might might have considered them a Super 8 team, but that's just that's just the nature of the draw. Maybe maybe that's for the GA to tweak. Maybe they need to start seeding the teams at the round three and round four stages, whereby the Division 1 or Division 2 teams will be automatically drawn against, say, a Division 3, Division 4 team. And that way you avoid maybe losing one of the bigger teams. But look, that's that's for another day. OK, look, considering we have the two years in here, uh, the Prefontaine Classic was on, Ian, this weekend. Uh, talk to us a bit about... Because we're, we're, we're talking now again. It, every time Castor Semenya runs, it, it's it's a topic. You wrote about it on Saturday. Tony, you wrote a really interesting column a, a few weeks back there about the whole situation. But Ian, give us a bit of background on how she's allowed to run under the current Yeah, well, look, I mean, the Prefontaine meeting is one of my favourite meetings in America on last night. It's all, it tracks all the big, sort of more distance-type races. And, uh, yeah, Castor Semenya was... This is her first race back since this is, since the ruling on at least with difference, difference in sexual development was suspended again um, pending the outcome of a Swiss tribunal appeal. And this is this, without... Without getting into too much legal talk here, this is different to the CASC. The Court of Arbitration for Sport deal only with sporting matters, and whereas the, the Swiss Tribunal Court deal with human rights issues, with all sorts of legal issues, and it's also it's also likely to drag on a lot longer. It's a, you know whereas CAS deals specifically with sport. From what I've heard, this Swiss Tribunal thing could go on for six months, maybe even longer, because they they they, they, they look at all angles here, not just the sporting angle. So she, as it stands, she does not have to reduce her testosterone. As levels. of now, no. But I mean, oh, I she's never going to do that. Well, yeah, yeah. She okay. says she's never going to do that, and yeah. you know she ran the Diamond League in Doha earlier in the season. It was questionable whether she was going to be doing her or not. She turned up the last minute. She went out and ran the fastest time in the world, one fifty four, one fifty five. She didn't run in Rabat and Stockholm. So for the first time in, 
I don't a good few years. It's 2015, yeah. Um, it was an 800 meter race without Castor Semenya running. Um, so there was a bit of interest there. What was it going to be like? And to me, it was very flat. Like it was weird. It was so. It, it's no more interesting without her right. <laughs> than it is with her. I think she adds something to the race. And um, as much as you know, you feel for the other athletes in the race that they're never going to win the race if she's mm. in it. They're not actually making the race exciting when she's not in it. They're just running around like they do when she is. And it's no more interesting to the spectators. So they've got to kind of get their act together. And, you know, I don't know. They, I don't know. They're just waiting to be allowed to have the race easy. You know, let's have the chance to win it. And yeah. it's, it's like two races. And in a way, there's this whole thing about having a different category. And maybe that's what has to be done in the end because... It, the whole going through the courts and sorting out a solution, it seems to be a never-ending issue. Yeah. And, you know, in a way, you kind of think there's got to be some way of determining, you know, if Castor Semenya and others like her um, are at another level that's not comparable to men and women as we know it in athletics. And that's what the IAAF is doing. They're looking at it purely from an athletics point of view, not from, you know, the kind of gradient of... Yeah, you know, people and like I was out running this morning, and I was thinking, you know, when I was running at my highest level, and I don't know if your natural level of testosterone changes from when you're an athlete to when you're just running around the park. Is it the same regardless? Like I'd love to know what was my testosterone level because obviously it must have been higher than some others, and and the same for many other athletes out there. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting what you wrote uh, a few weeks ago about this kind of third way, or th- so it's not male, it's not female, but. Like, how do I explain that to a young girl who's like Castor Semenya, who's a girl? You know, she believes she's a girl, she's female, uh, and to say no, you, you, for this third way as a solution. For how, how do I explain that to her that she, it's okay for she, she well, can't run? Well, as a you female. know, medically and scientifically, you can put the facts down in front of her and say, listen, this is your levels compared to these other people, and there's obviously, mm. you know, on the most kind of crude and scientific level. Yeah. This is the facts. And, you know, you're at a much higher advantage. And it's not because you're taller or bigger or stronger. But, yeah, of you course, know, yeah. Um, physiologically, you have testosterone levels more similar to a man than a woman. So you're more aligned with men. But, you know, you're not at the highest level because you're, you know, grown up as a woman. Mm. And Sonia, is that your feeling? And like reading that column too, that the only <clears throat> solutions here are either that, as you say, another category, which I think a lot of people would find very hard to accept uh, the introduction of that or like hormone treatment to reduce testosterone levels. Are they the only two? I don't think that's realistic. I don't think the hormone treatment is realistic. I think in, you know, the the world we live in, the sport we compete in, it's all anti-drugs and taking drugs. So to then tell someone that they have to take drugs to be able to compete, it's kind of going against what you know, what you stand for in yeah. the first place. So we so can't, I, that can't happen. That can't happen. And so there has to be a simple method like drug testing, you know, you're cheating or you're not cheating. And this is clearly, this is purely not cheating. Um, but there has to be some method of, like every athlete should know what their testosterone level is. And, yeah. and nobody does. Yeah. And so the thing is, if there's athletes like Castor Semenya, how do we test them? You know, at the moment, you're supposed to voluntarily go and register your testosterone levels and... You know, if it's questionable, yeah, you, know, you may be in, you know, the non-male or female category. But just, just on a, on a kind of a side note to that, or maybe kind of on, on the on the back of that, I actually wrote a column this week, more or less to kind of get a, get a feeling of like what are people's thoughts now on this. The point the point I was trying to make is, the athlete to race against Castor Semenya are for obvious reasons, you know, either unwilling or unable to kind of speak out. Okay, the race promoters are kind of caught in between, and then. The general public seem to be all on the back of, of Castor Semenya because, well, look, you know, obviously she's, you know, it's not her fault and that kind of stuff. But but behind that is 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 what Sonia's trying to point here is, is, the, is the foundation, not just of track and field, but of sport is keeping that category, is keeping that category um, not, 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 not sacred, but like it has to be, it has to be, it has to, you have to draw the line somewhere. And yet there seems to be kind of a reluctance to really address that issue as opposed to just dealing how with... How do you address know. that issue though? Well, uh, the reason, the reason, tell me how. One of the reasons well, I, I think if you stand out as much as she does, yeah. then... Um, if you're in the Olympic Games, yeah, then it nearly has to go down the Paralympic route, and okay. there's categories, and okay. you're a female, you're a male, and then you're in between. 
Okay. And if you're if you're in between and you're winning the race or you're finishing second and third, then the people who are fourth, fifth, and sixth, then they're also going to be up there and getting acknowledged and well, given well, medals. Just, but, but you're asking how again? This this is exactly what's happening. The IWF are trying to do this. This is their way. This is their how. This is this this is their solution. And okay, it's not ideal, but it, you've got two options here. You can just ignore it and and do nothing. And I think and it, well, this is only the beginning of of this of this issue. But the most important thing for me is. Some of the comments on this, and that's why it was kind of interesting to see what people thought on this. And it's almost like there's a real reluctance just to speak what people really feel about this. And that, that can be dangerous as well, because, you see, it's not just about Castor Semenya here or, or even 800 metres or whatever the distance race is. This, 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 this issue in sport is going to be, um, it's, it's not going to go away. And if you, if you can't speak, speak, up, sorry, speak up and be honest about it, I think that, that, that's a dangerous situation as well. So, but Castor can... That this is another thing that doesn't sit well with a lot of people is she can run five thousand. Let's say she was willing to yeah. reduce her testosterone levels, she wouldn't have to do that for five thousand meters. No, because she no. was originally entered. I she ran, she ran two thousand meters there recently, and yeah. she ran five thirty-eight, which would be a pretty good time for yeah. most people. And the world record is five twenty-five, but she wasn't trying to do that. She was just trying to win the race, and she won the race. So. Um, I'm not sure what she can do over 1,500 metres, but she can't do 1,500, she can do a mile. Mm. So it's a bit ambiguous, all that kind of stuff. But I think the biggest problem here is the IAAF are trying to find a solution so that there's clear-cut men and women categories. But in doing that, they're not finding any solution for Castor Semenya. Mm. So they just want to rub her out. They're getting in a racer and rubbing her out and rubbing out um, uh, Neon Sabo, from Burundi and there's another girl Margaret Wambui from Kenya like how's that going to reflect in the history of time in 10, 20 years from now we're going to look back and we're going to go this is what happened to her like she has junior world records for 800 metres she's Mm. got um, you know national records she's got stadium records meet records so they're all still there Mm. so even if there's changes made then there's not going to be a star beside her name they're going to stand in time because at the time she was you know, legally able to run. And I think I think that's your question. I think I look back at this. This is the first time that the sport tried to address this issue in, in a proper way, as opposed to ignoring it. And it, I mean, the way look look at the way society has changed. And you know, do the, we have to start addressing it in other sports then? Yeah, hundred percent, Gavin. Yeah, I think. The, I mean, look, this is this 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 was boxing we were talking about, or a more physical sport. I can guarantee you to be a lot more feelings felt. But to back to my original point there, this this is one of the things, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, Sonia, but like. How would you feel about running against a Castor Semenya? Just you know, say you were lining up for fifteen hundred meters back in your time. I mean, it just seems to me that the athletes who are lining up against her just there's almost we can't even look at her. She's not, or do we, do we ignore her? Do we embrace her? Um, well, I, I think there's definitely been a bit of a division recently. Like she doesn't seem to connect as well with the athletes. There was mm. she goes around and she shakes hands and congratulates them all, but there definitely seems to be a little bit of a, a tension there amongst yeah. them. But at the same time, you know. A lot of them, they do like her, and you know she's a she's a good character. Um, I know my daughter Sophie; she thinks she's great, and yeah. she runs the eight hundred meters. You know, um, and she kind of stands up for a lot of things. You know, she goes out there and she says, you know, I don't care what these people are doing; I'm just going to go and run and be the best and the strongest that I can be. So, as a human being, she's you know I suppose a a really good example for people for someone who's standing up for herself and mm. she's obviously had to learn to deal with that over the time because this has been going on since 10 years 2009 yeah. Yeah. world championships and she has been out of the sport and she's seen you know what can happen when she takes these um t- drugs to reduce the testosterone she knows that's not a good thing to do um it's it's just the most tricky and difficult situation ever. But we and have to keep talking about it, don't we? Do you understand? Because well, it, it, yeah, we it's can't not going to go away. It's not going to go away, and she's not going to let it go away because you know she's determined to you know continue as an athlete. That's and when you think who she is, and that's what she does. Two thousand and nine, I think, was the first time she was subjected to the gender verification test. Ten years, like this has been going on, yes. and whatever about you know the whole difficulties of this, that kind of load on her in all that time just yes. on a human level and the fact that she's so determined to fight all of this she's some character you know? I agree. but, but the interesting thing also is in all that time there's only been a handful of people with the, in the similar category and the sim, similar so how do we situation. have it if, if there's only been a handful how do we have a third category like, well that's the thing is it can't be on its own yeah. it'll still have to be inclusive yeah. as it is I think you know you can't go out there and have a separate race with you know maybe one or two people running around. It has to be, you know, like a number of Paralympic events are run. Mm. And, you know, there is cat- the, the race as you're watching it may not be the result that you see at the end. So the Olympic champion 
mm. may not be the person who crosses the line first. Just one point, I think, just to put some footnote to that. If you actually read the CAS report on the thing, it's about 167 pages. They address a lot of the things you talk about here, including the fact that I'll be forcing a woman to take a drug against her will. The actual science is saying now, I'm not... <laughs> I'm going to be careful to say here that it's, it's actually no different than, a, than a, an oral contraceptive, which millions of women take. A lot of athletes take, you know, to, you know, to avoid pregnancy while, while they're competing. But so they do it by choice. They do that by choice, obviously. But in terms of the, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're messing with our health here or, you know, we're forcing it to do something against the will. I accept that. But it's actually, it's not as maybe a bigger, a bigger sort of a health or, or, or uh, maybe ethical issues. Maybe some people are making it out to be. If that was in the report, by the way. That's not me saying that. That was the CAS feeling on this. That the, 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 the the, the the allowance to take this this these these hormones where 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 were justified in the context of the the necessary um, discrimination was the word that they used has become it's not become about the sport it's become about Caster Semenya which is the real pity in all of this isn't it yeah, yeah. she's I mean, become it, it definitely shouldn't be about her and you know it has become about her and you know and and she's made it more about her as well because she's not hiding away and afraid of it you know did she, she have a choice do you think um, well some people may have shied away from it but she's seen this as a kind of method of you know just making a stand as you'd expect from a champion you know as so many people do these days you know if you have a a platform to go out there and voice you know your opinion and say how you feel Mm. and if it involves you and you know it doesn't seem to affect her mentally in any way it comes with a cost though doesn't it it has to come with some kind of a psychological cost doing what she's done, you know what I mean, going out and Well, I'm not herself. sure she's able to make a proper plan of what she's doing for the rest of the year or for, the, you know, her career, you know. Mm. It's kind of one race at a time at the moment and, you know, things are changing and evolving all the time and there's all this pressure to make a decision and that's why earlier this year when the decision was made, you know, people thought, oh, that's it, it'll be over now. Mm. But, you know, it was never going to be over because she wasn't going to let it go. And, and But to be able to come back out and run and race as well as she did off of that. I mean, that is either um, hugely strong mentally, um, but also physically that she's a lot better than she's running. And, you know, she's... Oh, yeah, she holds back. There's a possibility that she does hold back, uh, isn't there? But, but but maybe because she's not able to train properly because oh, okay. maybe, maybe she is mentally affected and she can't train properly. She can't, you know, decide I'm going to go for the world record, but she can still win the races. And at the end of the day, you know, that's that's all you have to do is win the races. And it doesn't really matter if you run a super fast times. Oh, it is. I mean, the thing is, she goes out there, she runs along, controls the race for the first 600 meters. And then it's like she just switches on then and right, I'm going to run away now. And and there is absolutely no reaction from anybody else because they can't do it. They're all going at their limit. Yeah. And it's it's not like any other race. Like there's every other race on the circuit. There's not one person who's as dominant as she has been since 2015. 30, 31 races now unbeaten and Sonia's right I mean again you see the difference here is and that's why some of the comments about the Usain Bolt and the long legs and the long necks it's, it's, that's so, it's so wide of the mark this, this is a completely different this is a completely different matter and you know we, as you say you either ignore it or you try to address it I think Gavin in 5 to 10 years time or 20 years time whatever it might take I think this, they'll look back on this episode and say yeah it was, it was, it was difficult it was, it, was, it was uncomfortable it was, it was you know at times you know um, you know Divisive, but I think they will see this this as a necessary a necessary move for the protection of men and women in sport down or, or if they don't, if they don't, well, that's fine too. Well, then then we'll stay, then it just become. So if they a, don't a see it, if they don't see it as a necessary move, what will history look like? Back I think on we're going to see we're going to see a, a gradual erosion of 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 that of that men and women's category, and, and then there'll be I think there'll be by 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 pure force they'll have to set up a third category, which which by the way, and that includes transgender athletes. That's fine as well, but I mean the idea being that. If you, if you're, if we're not going to try to protect us, well then I think that's more that's more dangerous than than than, than ignoring the matter. Okay, we will come back to it again someday, and regularly, I imagine. Look, this is the Out of Time podcast. Sonia, thanks a million. We're, we're you're very welcome. Blessed Lovely by your presence, here. Mary. Good work, Ian. Yeah. Thank you very thanks, much. Um, see you next week.